The Future by Stefan Molyneux, Chapter 4. Like many people, at least those in the past, Alice found fear and her life's purpose in the same moment. Much though she loved her parents, she also loved time alone, and so went for lengthy, solitary walks. There was virtually no sense of fear in her world, at least of people, accidents and illness, were still occasionally fatal, as she well knew. When she was younger, Alice had asked her father whether she should be afraid of people, and he had nodded seriously before smiling gently. You know how obsessed I am with history, right? Particularly ancient history, like a thousand years ago. Well, there was a time even before that, ancient, ancient history, or ancient squared history, perhaps. Alice giggled. <laughs> or maybe the word ancient with a line on top, like in music. He smiled. <laughs> yeah, you, like you know how some people are called Richardson, and that means son of Richard? It seems to be logical that the son of Richardson would be called Richard Sunson, and his kid, <laughs> Richard Sunson son. He pointed a finger at her. Go! Richard Sunson son son son. Richard Sunson son 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 son. Richard Sunson son 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 son. Repeat and fade. Uh. Richard son 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 son. He clapped with delight. Perfect. And there was a technology in the ancient world that allowed you to be frozen if you were very sick and about to die in the hopes of being brought back to life in the future when there was a cure for your illness. He counted off his fingers. So let's say that Richard son, 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 son froze himself. What would you call him? I don't know. <laughs> Frozen Richard son, 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 son. Ice Richard son, repeat and fade. <laughs> Could be. Although I, for one, would call him Richard son, 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 sonsicle. Hearty laughter. <laughs> anyway, in the ancient, ancient times when people lived out in the woods, like we do, but... It was really wild all around. They had no technology, no computers, no bots, no machines. There were lots of animals that were pretty dangerous. Some of them tiny, like insects and microbes and germs and viruses. And some of them huge, like bears. And some of them large and numerous, like packs of wolves and coyotes. There were also alligators and crocodiles, which were basically land sharks that lived in ponds. Even a small animal, like a chipmunk or a raccoon, could give you a deadly bite that could drive you mad. They called it hydrophobia and later rabies, and there was no cure. A tiny cut could get you infected. There's a real mess all around, particularly teeth, which killed a lot of people by getting infected. They didn't have tooth pots at night, of course. Anyway, people ended up congregating in cities for a variety of reasons, and in the cities, they didn't have to worry about natural predators, except maybe a couple of wild dogs, which were not too bad to deal with. You never had to deal with a bear or a pack of wolves in a city. Getting away from these natural predators was one of the big advantages of living in a city. But, of course, living in a city exposed you to all the unnatural predators. Thieves and pickpockets and murderers and stick-up artists. People who would point a weapon at you and take your money. But, at least you didn't have to worry about wolves and bears. Alice's eyes were wide. Were people really that dangerous back then? Her father nodded slowly, seriously. Oh, yeah, I was just terrible. And I haven't even told you about the worst predator of all, the most dangerous hunter of human beings. What, worse than a bear? Well, bears don't really hunt people. No, the worst predator was... He paused. 
What? Alice could see her father regarding the inner visage of her mother and wondering if his daughter was old enough to hear about the most dangerous predator in human history. Uh, let's wait. I, I, I suppose it gives you something to look forward to. Aww, I know, I know. Anyway, one of the things that people did was to tame wolves and turn them into dogs. Dogs were great for hunting and guiding livestock and guarding and teaching some empathy to children. It was like domesticating cats, which happened mostly so that rats and mice could be kept away from stored food, especially in the winter. Predators were turned from enemies into friends, mostly by domesticating them, which meant having them bond with human beings and treating them very well and, and feeding them, you know, petting them and taking care of them in general. You kept the most dangerous natural predators at a distance and you domesticated the local predators to turn them into friends. Alice sighed. Dad, you really have to learn how to shorten your answers. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> anyway, one of the great lessons of the last century or so has been the domestication of human beings. We finally figured out the true cause of crime and violence and solved it across most of the world, for all time, I think. It took a lot of suffering to get there, to, to get here. But this is the foundation on which the peace and plenty of the modern world is built. Alice could tell he was skirting around some big topic, but she decided to let it pass. So I don't have to worry about people then. He smiled. <laughs> no, honey, you don't. The odds of you running into someone dangerous are about the same as the odds of you being struck by lightning. Less, even. We actually learned how to end evil, or the desire to use violence to get the unearned. She jumped up, her legs tingling from sitting too long. So, I'm free to roam? Please do. And roam, she did. Beginning at about the age of nine, Alice explored a good chunk of the world, at least her local world, largely on her own. She would sit in the white pews of a sky taxi or use a sky trampoline and visit the local towns. She loved walking down the wide, tree-lined avenues past the local markets, which mostly contained human-made pieces of art, clothing, furniture, and food, popular among the purebloods, the people who had decided to live without machinery for various reasons. Some of them were back-to-the-land folks who said that the most natural life was the best life and tried to do everything by hand or at least with as little machine assistance as possible. Some of the purebloods also believed that exploiting machines was a form of slavery and refused to participate in the bot life. Lively debates were held on a regular basis about all these issues. The oldest and most intractable problem of ideology, absolutism, was regularly challenged and crucified, so to speak. Was it permissible to let machines clear the land before you took up planting by hand? Was it acceptable to let nanobots scour your body clear of cancer if you got sick? Alice accepted that human beings would always want to challenge, and one of the greatest challenges in a peaceful society was the question of purity. The debates never got out of hand, of course. People moved back and forth between various positions, both ideologically and physically. But the question could never be resolved perfectly, because, of course, perfection is impossible. If a life without machines is the best, 
then if you need to dip into the world of machines in order to survive cancer, say, then you should do so in order to continue enjoying the life without machines. At the other extreme are the people who viewed bots as a stepping stone to a higher consciousness, a, a form of godhood, and eagerly merged their consciousness into every spare atom of quantum computing they could get their mental hands on. They were constantly pushing the boundaries of the overlap between human consciousness and machine mind, inserting modules that allowed them to program their own brains. They rarely returned from their digital journeys, and so did not often participate in the various debates. Plus, they often lost the knack of communicating in merely mortal terms, and often preferred having virtual consciousness to having actual children, and so tended to fade away from human society, operating on the fringes of what could be seen at the flickering edges of the collective digital mind. They sometimes combined with each other, as well as machines, and claimed that the ecstasy of the ultimate merge was greater than anything that could be achieved by what they somewhat condescendingly referred to as the mortal flesh suit. Their happiness took them so far outside of natural society that they ended up getting lost over the digital horizon, like fading echoes in a bottomless canyon. Alice found the variety of the communities amazing and wonderful, some people liked to live with their own ethnicities. Other people liked to blend in multiracial societies. There were a few female-only neighborhoods and even a few male-only and one teen-only neighborhood which truly fascinated her. Automation was the essence of the world. There were five kinds of neighborhoods in general. Big bots, nanobots, human bots, normal bots, and botless, no bots at all. In the Big bots neighborhoods, the automation was large, creative, innovative, and startling. You could be served by dinosaurs, pixies, space creatures. There was an entire town devoted to Lord of the Rings, with every creature from the books faithfully replicated. You had to stay on your toes and get used to it, because the bot artists were unconstrained in their creativity. You could hire a twin for the day. Alice was once startled by being served by a waiter who looked exactly like her, down to the little scar under her left eye that came from swimming goggles a year ago. The restless spirit of the endless artistry extended even to the houses, which constantly changed color, shape, and style. Sometimes when you were walking down the street, a cottage would morph into a castle, and then a bulbous anti-gravity funhouse, if a children's party was underway. It was all a little intense for her rational mind, and she began to steer clear of these waking dreams avenues. The nanobot neighborhoods could be equally surreal. There, people preferred not to see any automation at all, so restaurant meals arrived floating on air. <laughs> Ancient people with uncertain legs zoomed by, appearing to sit on nothing. People had animated conversations, gesturing at invisible phones, and Children climbed randomly in midair, their hands and feet supported by invisible servants. Even sky taxis and jetpacks were invisible. People just flew through the air, pointing and laughing. Alice preferred the human bots neighborhoods, where all automations took human form, with a red dot on the left earlobe to distinguish them. Recent work to make the robots even more human had been 
pulled back because it kind of messed with people's heads, and so duller eyes and more doll-like hair had become the norm. Normal bod neighborhoods were the most familiar. Form followed function. Vacuum robots were giant suction holes with spider legs. Construction bots were a tangle of arms and conveyor belts removing and piling. Waiters were metal bipeds with forklift arms. Botless neighborhoods were nostalgic throwbacks to the time before automation. Engines were allowed. Machines were welcome, but bots were not. These were actually growing in popularity because the inevitable human impulse to dabble in the spectacular grew wearisome, and it wasn't actually good for people's long-term mental health to live in the resurrected dreams of hyper-creative artists. Everyone advocated for their own visions and competed for the minds and hearts of the transient. Neighborhoods grew, split, vanished, formed, and reformed on a continual basis. We cannot safely or sanely move past our evolution, said a passionate bearded man at a cafe. We evolved in the woods very well. We can leave the woods, but we cannot leave reality. We cannot survive at the mercy of other people's imaginations. When we are continually presented with that which was impossible even 20 years ago, baby T-Rex is serving us brunch. It dissolves our capacity to process reality. It is entertaining. It is distracting, but it is inhuman. The no-bots advocates referred to the tinkering with unreality that characterized the other neighborhoods as a rumspringer, a youthful time when curiosity trumps common sense and novelty distracts from virtue. Outside the towns, and there are always tours going everywhere, people loved to advertise their own lifestyles, you could really dive deep into the nitty-gritty of rural life among the people who eschewed technology as a whole. Alice had inherited her father's interest in history and would sometimes wander around towns with a bookbot whispering in her ear. She tried some of the latest virtual reality technologies but found them far too realistic for her tastes. She went on a Martian experience, sniffing the cinnamon winds of the red planet, shivering under the cold, pale sky. But it either felt unreal or terrifyingly real. After she had a minor panic attack looking at the tiny moon-like Earth from Mars, she unplugged and never returned. There were entire communities of people living virtual lives on Mars, and they often enticed her to stay. But she found the experience, and actually smiled when the word popped into her mind, alienating. A few people were actually living on Mars, but interplanetary colonization was generally viewed as the most extreme of sports like solo alpining or seafloor exploration, and was left to the thrill junkies who lived to surf the edge of adrenaline. The people who escaped into virtual reality did get their exercise on rotating room floors that could simulate just about any ground surface, allowing them to move, climb, hike, swim, you name it. But it just seemed too unreal to be enticing. Also, Alice was alarmed about some of the reports that people who spent too much time in virtual reality lost their caution in the real world. They would forget to put on sunscreen, lean over cliff edges, imagining that every negative consequence in reality could be undone, like the safe game world of VR. Her parents let her explore these alternative worlds, but did remind her that she was only alive to explore them because 
They had limited their own youthful use of the infinite technology, deciding to return and start an actual family. Her father said once, It seems odd that some people still want to escape into a virtual world when we have made the real world so pleasant. Alice had asked him about combining her love of history with virtual reality, but he said that no company would let her go into an accurate historical VR because, as a child, she would just be too traumatized by direct and vivid contact with most of human history. His eyes grew deadly serious. It's too much of a horror show to be experienced directly. You can watch it on a flat screen. There are some of them still around, and you can also read about it in books on flat text, but what you cannot do is step in and experience it yourself, directly. Honestly, I have no idea how people in history kept even a shred of their sanity given the horrors of the world around them. Although I suppose that was the perspective of people in the old world. (laughs) We look back at the world of history and see it as a madhouse of evil and violence, but the people back then looked back even further to the ancient world, uh, like a time of plague and superstition and starvation and war and death by infection and tooth decay, and imagined that those people lived in hell as well. Now, even if you find someone willing to let you go into, say, 600 years ago, just report them to our local DRO, because they really shouldn't be doing that. They would probably be fined, not ostracized, but still. Alice would wander into a few back-alley flat-screen movie shows about the past, where very elderly and sad-faced men, whose grandfathers probably passed down to them first-hand childhood accounts of the cataclysms, would tell her age-appropriate stories of the old world, their voices paper-thin. Oh, back then, my dear, parents were forced to pay for the schools, and children were mostly forced to go. There was a lot of violence and abuse. What? What is abuse? Well, it's when you... Generally, it's when you try to make yourself feel better by making someone else feel worse. In this case, a child. Why did people do that? Well, I guess everyone thought it was something called human nature, which is very strange when you think about it. It would have been in the past, too, if people had bothered to think about it at all. Forcing people into a building is the definition of a prison. Uh, A prison? (laughs) Yeah, sorry. A a prison was a massive fortified building where criminals were put, and a lot of non-criminals, sadly, and forced to stay for a certain amount of time because they had confessed to some kind of crime or been found guilty. Anyway, the schools were the closest thing that most people ever came to being in prison because they were forced to be there and bullied constantly and lied to about the world and morality and their society as a whole. And it was really the only place, outside the family, of course, where people experienced direct violence, often daily. And the truly mad part of it was that the parents were forced to pay for all of this violence and incarceration and indoctrination. (laughs) Sorry. Incarceration means keeping people in buildings against their wills. It's pretty much the same as kidnapping, but it was justified by the general beliefs at the time. No, the truly mad part was that the teachers, who were paid by threats of violence against the parents, would always instruct the children that they must never, ever use violence to get their way. No violence, no stealing, is the general saying in these school prisons, while the teachers and the managers and all the workers got paid by violence. Who forced the parents to pay? 
I'm afraid that's where the limit of considerate education comes for me. You will have to ask your parents about all of that. That is not something that you should learn from a stranger. There was a non-blind spot at the center of her society, at least in talking about the past. A massive trauma that reminded her of an experiment her father had done with her once about trying to push two opposing magnets together. Closing the circle of ignorance, talking about the core of the evils of the past, was something that people still shied away from, even generations after the cataclysms. It was the only real sign of superstition that she found in her society. It was like the world had killed some kind of demon or deadly ghost and was afraid to speak its name for fear of bringing it back to life. When you are older, when you are older. But then, one day in the woods on the mountain, Alice found fear, found her future, and came the closest to the evils of the past that could be conceived of in the world of the present. Chapter 5 Alice became friends with the dark-haired man from the cafe. He had a daughter, Emily, who became her best friend. Emily's family were often referred to as harpies, which was a combination of the ancient word hippies, because of their loving view of nature, as well as harpies, since they could be quite insistent on their back-to-nature philosophy. Emily's father was a swarthy, dark-haired man with wide shoulders and extravagant passions who railed against the modern world and its dependence on computers and machines. You know that we are carbon-based life forms, not silicon-based life forms, right? Let me tell you about my day. I get up before dawn, milk the cows, boil the peanuts I washed last night, and then break the earth with a metal plow pulled behind an unruly mule. I fix my own shoes, do my own carpentry, grow my own fruits and vegetables, and a couple of times a year, slaughter my own pigs. I preserve and smoke my own wheat and rely on these. Here he slapped his meaty biceps instead of this. Here he simulated frantic typing in thin air. Here, body, 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 keep being infant forever. He wasn't exactly a fanatic, and Alice wasn't afraid of anyone, of course, since she knew she would never be yelled at or hit. So she took him on after dinner one night. You are very passionate about this. He rolled his eyes and burped. The word passion is an insult used by the bloodless to criticize those with actual emotions. Alice smiled, unoffended. It was widely recognized that to be offended was to automatically lose the argument. What do you mean? He fixed his eyes on her. What is the purpose of life? It was her turn to roll her eyes. Why, happiness, of course. Why? because it is the one state that we do not achieve in order to achieve some other state. We get Bitcoin to buy things. We buy things to make us happy. Once we are happy, there's no other place to go. He jabbed his finger into the palm of his other hand. Right. And every time a man or a girl uses a machine, do you know what he or she is actually saying? Alice smiled. Um, I don't want to waste my time. He barked with laughter. (laughs) No. If a man uses a machine to lift something, he's admitting that he's unable to lift it himself. Every time we use a machine to do something, we are confessing that we cannot do it ourselves or are unwilling. In other words, we are either weak or lazy. 
Alice smiled, enjoying the debate. Are you calling me weak or lazy? His eyes widened. What? Insult a child? <laughs> of course not. You're in a state of pre-knowledge. Think of the people stuck in the outer rims of VR who barely ever come back to reality. By living in a computer, they're saying that they need a computer in order to be happy. Isn't that a little sad, don't you think? Alice considered. Let's start with something a little easier, which is medicine. Surely medicine is acceptable if you get sick. He pursed his lips, frowning. Okay, but what you need to understand... <laughs> Sorry, Alice, that was a little condescending. What's important to remember is the old lesson of automobiles from the old world. People were forced to wear seatbelts, the idea being that if they crashed, they would be safer, but they actually caused more danger. People with seatbelts simply drove faster and more dangerously. The people who got injured more were people on little two-wheeled motorcycles or, or people just walking around. Pedestrians, they were called, I think. People with easy access to medicine tend to live more risky lives. They, they eat badly, exercise less. Perhaps they have other bad habits. It's not entirely clear that access to medicine extends the lifespan enormously. It simply backfills people's bad decisions quite often. Alice gestured at her watching friend. So if Emily got sick, you wouldn't take her to a doctor? His eyes narrowed. I'm not a fanatic, my dear. He touched his daughter's cheek with great affection. The purpose of life is, is, is happiness, and if Emily died from a curable illness, I would be miserable for the rest of my life, probably. It's quite a common thing in the world. When someone has a belief, you push it to extremes, hoping to break it and then abandon the entire system. It's like having a sky trampoline then saying, well, it doesn't bounce me to the moon, so I'm not going to use it at all. Extremes are not a test of a system aiming at a moving target like happiness. Ambition is necessary for the young, but it looks kind of ridiculous when a man turns 140. Exercise is, is good, unless you work too hard and hurt yourself. Absolutes can never hit moving targets, and vice versa. But let me ask you this. He paused. Alice said, yes? He chose his words delicately. Of course, there will never be other cataclysms, but I do sometimes wonder what would happen if there was a failure in the computers or the bots or the machines and people were left to face reality without all of this silicon nonsense propping them up. He took a bite, happy to talk through his chewing. I mean, imagine if VR went down. People would lose half their relationships, their sense of where they are, of reality itself. They'd get to see what their food actually looks like and their friends too if they have any nearby. Look, it's not healthy to become so dependent on external machinery that you can't really function without it. It's not how we evolved. It's how kings and rulers and slave masters evolved. But not us, not working folks. He nodded with evident pleasure. I know that I can produce my own food and shelter with my own hands. And that gives me great satisfaction. And I'm desperate to communicate to other people that the hard work and sacrifice is worth it. I feel like I'm trying to pry people away from a kind of digital drug. I mean, you're going hiking with Emily tomorrow after the sleepover when you could just as easily walk in VR or, or take sky trampolines or even be carried by bus bots. You're choosing to walk because you want your feet on the ground, the scent of oak in your nose, the wind in your ears making that tiny roar. <laughs> he smiled in sensual delight. You want the crunch of leaves and needles under your feet, the swaying as you walk and... You want your breath to come hard and tight and your muscles to throb at the end of the day. That kind of work is what makes us human. It's how we got to the top of the food chain and now rule a peaceful planet. 
It just feels kind of odd to abandon all the musculature that got us to where we are for the sake of turning machines into slaves to do everything for us. Alice nodded and took a sip of water. That's totally true. I, I do love to hike, as does Emily. And I like the variety as well. She widened her hands. To be honest, I view where you're coming from as a kind of the opposite extreme of the VR dwellers. They live in machines. You want to live without machines. And I'm not going to nag you about axes and plows and silly things like that. I get that absolutism is a cheap argument. But I'm kind of for the Aristotelian mean. If I want to hike someplace remote, I want to jump there or be carried. If I had to spend a week doing boring hikes in order to get to a beautiful hike, I probably wouldn't go. I'll be honest with you. And, okay, tell me this. When was the last time you went on a distant hike? He pursed his lips to one side, considering her question. I'm not pausing because I'm trying to find some way out of your question, but because I don't really remember. And I actually haven't had much of a desire to hike since I work with my body all day and find great satisfaction in that labor. Well, that's fine. Grindalis, I do love a good debate. <laughs> Here's my issue, if this makes any sense. I think that the desire to enroll other people in your recipe or, or path to happiness generally takes away from that happiness. You would prefer it if the world would be self-sufficient in the way that you and your family are, right? He nodded eagerly. So, you see, you are less happy because other people are not listening to you, or at least do not follow your advice or prescription or whatever you want to call it. So you are putting your happiness in the hearts and minds of others, and you cannot control them directly since no one does that anymore. So your happiness is taken away from you and depends, at least in part, on whether other people accept what you have to say. Myself, I don't want to put any part of my happiness on the free will of others. You mean even a husband or your children? Alice paused, waiting for the response to bubble up in her, as it usually did in these kinds of conversations. No, because you're talking about changing the whole world. My husband and my children will have similar values to me, so they are a pre-selected group, not a random sample of everyone that I would want to change. She took another sip of water, holding up a finger. I guess there are two ways to go about trying to get other people to change. The first is to insist that they change and give them lots of arguments and evidence. And the second is to be happy yourself and see if they are interested in how you got there. You seem to judge people who are dependent on machines very negatively. And I think in general, it's that negative judgment that will push them away from you and not give you the happiness that you want or add to their happiness either, I guess. He stared at her, then laughed in delight. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. That's a really good argument. I can't believe you're still so young. But this is a brave new world, particularly for kids, of course. Good for you. I don't have a great response, so I would just say that tomorrow, listen up, Emily, you'll love this. Tomorrow, you can hike anywhere that a sky taxi can take you. Emily jumped up, knocking over her cup of herbal tea. Really? <laughs> Emily had had bronchitis when she was younger and still had a little bit of asthma, and when she got excited, a kind of faint, goose-like honking came out of her throat. They stayed up late that night, using Alice's phone to examine every nook and cranny in the proximate wilderness, looking for the greatest possible hike. They finally found, tucked under the low-hanging canopy of the 3D map, a natural cave, with a thin but rapid waterfall spraying out of it. It was not too distant, about halfway up Smudge Mountain, and there did appear to be some vague paths leading up from some lower meadows. 
Grudgingly, Emily's father zoomed in on the map, examining the paths in greater detail. Hmm, it's not really bear country. Those paths look too narrow, so you should be fine. <sighs> I'm going to really throw myself into the fire and ask you to take an emergency bot with you, with the understanding that this is the reason why I try to avoid technology, since depending on one thing tends to lead to depending on another until you haven't seen a natural sunrise in three years, like my brother. This would be Emily's first time on a sky taxi, and she was enormously excited. The pair stayed up very late talking about the adventure to come until Alice sensibly reminded her friend that it would be much less enjoyable if they didn't get enough sleep. Emily agreed on the condition that they travel without phones in the morning since they tended to be so distracting. After an early breakfast, Emily's father mounted a horse and rode off to borrow an emergency bot. He reminded them that the bot might need some sunlight from time to time and to use it to call the sky taxi 45 minutes before they needed it. After activating the emergency bot, they played a lazy game of horseshoes as the sun rose above a distant and rather unkempt barn. Soon enough, a pure white six-seater sky taxi slid through the air over the cows, causing them to moo anxiously. It settled just above the ground. Emily's father said, What do they call them, rows? Alice smiled. Pews. We get into the pews. Alice lugged up their backpacks and the bot, then leaned forward to the crystals and murmured their destination. The sky taxi surged into the air, expertly blowing anti-wind against the slipstream, so that only a vague breeze stirred their hair as they shot through the sky. Some people like sky taxis with windows, but I think they suck, cried Alice in heady joy. Emily laughed. I thought we would have to be yelling the whole time. But this is kind of weirdly quiet. I can see why it reminds some people of a church. Alice asked the sky taxi to skim the treetops, and they competed as to who could find the most bird's nests. After a while, Alice turned to her friend, curiously. Do you like this natural life that your family has? Emily made a face. Well, that's not a big question or anything. We have some time. Emily tucked a long strand of hair behind her left ear, turning to regard the treetops flowing under the pews. Alice could sense a strong feeling rising within her friend, but gave her space to let it form. Eventually, Emily said softly, I actually really like working on the farm. It does feel real and, and vivid and <laughs> smelly, of course. It feels better that my friends actually have to visit and, and we see each other for real. And there's always something to do, and I'm never bored. And I don't feel like I have to run like crazy after this stimulation stuff that everyone else seems to want all the time. I do miss having more in common with other people. You all have these references to things I don't really know anything about, although I guess I do for you as well. It's definitely what my dad thinks is the best thing, and my mom too, of course. And I trust them that they're looking out for what is best for me, and they never make me do anything. And of course, I never get punished or anything like that. That's a given. Who does? <laughs> and my dad is very clear that whatever I want to do as an adult is totally up to me. So in three years, I can make whatever choices I want. And he will support me no matter what. So I, I would say I'm happy in, in what it is that I'm doing. Alice smiled. That's great. I appreciate that. Thank you. I know it was a sudden and big question. That's kind of like my habit if you haven't figured that out by now. <laughs> oh, yes, we all know, laughed Emily. <laughs> Sometimes we call you Chalice because there's a lot to drink in. Alice giggled. <laughs> Chalice? 
<laughs> That's really great. I envy you a little bit, to be honest, if you don't mind. Mind? Why would I mind? I thought I was a little bit pitied. Not not exactly, but you know what I mean. Like like a poor relation who can't afford a cookbot. Envy, because you have something to battle. You battle nature and, and animals, I guess, to some degree, and the challenge of a fairly different lifestyle from everyone else, or at least most people. Alice raised her fists into the breathing air. I wake up punchy, and I go to sleep punchy, and my dreams are punchy. But the world seems so serene and even-tempered and peaceful that I feel as if my punchiness would just be like, I don't know, like everyone's looking at the reflection of a beautiful sunset on a still lake, and I just heave a big giant boulder into it and smash up all the serenity. (laughs) That's not exactly a good way to put it, because they could just look directly at the sunset, but you know what I mean. You have something to fight, and all I do, I think, is fight my own punchiness. You know what people would say about that, right? They cried out together in sing-song voices, Where in your childhood did that come from? Alice smiled ruefully. Yeah, that's what they always say, but I don't think anything particularly bad happened to make me punchy, other than my sister, of course, which was just a brute accident, and I was so young, I don't really... So much about us is genetic, they say, so, I mean... I had my scans like everyone, totally normal, very peaceful parenting, my family is great, but I'm still punchy, and I kind of wonder if I'm going to grow out of it, leave it behind, even out, sink into the swamp of everyone, if that makes sense. But it's growing instead, especially after puberty and and all that. (laughs) Maybe I should just start a... Her mouth froze. What? Oh, no, (laughs) nothing. Emily leaned towards her. Truth spell, she murmured. This was from an old game they played, where they were wizards and had magic. Oh, my goodness, that's kind of ancient. Truth spell on the freckled forehead, said Emily, placing her cool hand on Alice's skin. Oh, I was going to say, perhaps I should start a war, but that's about as not funny as anything could be. Well, that is some edgy humor right there, said Emily, drawing back slightly. She blushed suddenly. No, it's fine, I'm not offended, but I guess I'm just happy there's no one else in church with us. No secrets, of course, but it's okay if we just keep this between us. They knew some of the history of the cataclysms, enough to know what would never be considered funny. Emily nodded slowly. Okay, I'll do one, and then we will be even, and we'll have to keep each other's secrets. Oh, okay. Emily leaned forward and whispered, Perhaps you and me and a group of criminals should take control of everyone's money. Alice laughed nervously. (laughs) Find a way to make bitcoins out of thin air, stealing everything from everyone? Emily gasped. Ooh, and we could force all the children to learn what we wanted, what served our needs so they would become our slaves. And find a way to sell people into debt so we could become rich. Children too, even the unborn. And... Find a way to charge people for going to work. Charge them for a certificate saying they could. And if they ever displeased us, we could just take it all away. Alice's cheeks were red with daring. Oh, oh, I've got one. We could force people to fight our wars. The two girls shivered. Although the sun was rising and the air was warm and went silent. Some jokes were just too dark.